The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, local Lego guru Andy Price on this weekend's BrickCon Lego convention in Springfield. And our regular Monday guest, who got bumped for an astronaut yesterday, <laughs> Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on observing the most distant star humans have ever seen. They've met before. I bet they were okay with I, it. He was okay. <laughs> Plus our legal expert, Western New England University's Jen Taub, with a lesson in the law surrounding the latest batch of indictments for the former president. But first... This is a special Tuesday edition of our Word Nerd segment because a week from today... In Northampton, the premier end-of-summer musical event and fundraiser formerly known as Trans Performance. Let me read from an NEPM piece by Karen Brown. A decades-long concert tradition in Northampton, Massachusetts, it's changing its name. Organizers say they want to be more inclusive. Since 1991, the Northampton Arts Council has put on a musical fundraiser called Trans Performance. Local bands transform into famous acts according to a theme and usually play in costume. But the title's prefix can be confusing. Many assume it means transgender. So, Khalees has a long time been a part of this trans performance event. I, for a long time, have been part of this trans performance event. Steve Sanderson from the Northampton Arts Council, who is also the morning show host on 93.9 The River WRSI. (laughs) (laughs) It was an amicable taking of the spot. It wasn't a usurpation. Uh, But that was my fancy word to impress. Word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, who's joining us specially on Tuesday today to talk about trans, trans performance. What could we call this event? Which, Steve... I think, unfortunately, for the last two years, has just been called performance, which is boring. Agreed. Yeah. Lackluster. <laughs> just nope. Yes. For a quick second, go back to um, the, the decision to change the name from trans performance, which totally hmm. made a lot of sense for a long time, but it's it's understandable that it's confusing. It was rife for some critique because are you allowed to take the Pioneer Valley Portation Authority to the event called performance. When is trans a good prefix to use and when not? We'll we'll talk to Emily about that in a bit, but tell us about that decision a couple years ago to change the name. Well, the decision was made by the Arts Council itself, which is a nonprofit entity that their main job is to give away the money and keep me completely separate from that so that, you know, I, I know so many artists and work within the arts that it's a nice separation of all the money to my friends, which I might do. You never know. Right. (laughs) So there had been a lot of voices in the council over the years saying, you know, at some point we should really change this, if not uh, for allying with the trans community, at least uh, cutting down on the confusion. And it finally went to a vote and they decided to do it. And here we are. But at the time of the vote, they didn't have an idea of what to do instead. And I begged for us to workshop that before we did it and not announce it right before the show so that it would take all the air out of the room right before the show. But uh, they sometimes don't listen to me. And it was funny because I created promos for a long time for the radio for trans performance. And when already those promos were on the air, the name changed. So I took Mm -hmm. intentionally went through the promo and just silenced the word trans. The only person that was 
curious about why we did this was a trans person who happens to be on your show every week now, Steve Sanderson. <laughs> I know. Why, why, would, why would you silence the word trans from this? Like, what's the problem? And so that was an, an irony that I think might have been unexpected. Uh, we're speaking with Steve Sanderson from the Northampton Arts Council, also the host of 93.9 The River's Morning Show, and Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster. Let's talk about the prefix trans and perhaps the transition that it has made over the years. <laughs> That's one of your better ones, Monty. I'm Thank not you. mad at that. Okay, good. I mean, it's a long-standing prefix, right? The prefix trans has been part of the English language for hundreds of years. In recent years, though, the adjective trans has come to be more established, specifically referring to transgender people. So when the adjective trans was first used, it was a really technical term. It was using chemistry and genetics, had to do with groups of atoms on opposite sides of the longitudinal axis of a double bond, Ooh. that sort of thing, right? The adjective trans was really something that was used only by a very small set of people on the planet. But then trans came to be used to mean transgender. The word became far more common in general use than it ever had been, you know, it's a term of identity. And so it then carries very different weight to it. It means that it's wise to exercise caution in applying it in contexts that don't relate specifically to the people who identify as transgender as trans. Yeah, I can imagine new transplants to the area thinking that they're about to go to this amazing festival that features prominently mostly trans people. That's why trans performance in 2023 and even 2021, when the name uh, was changed, could be confusing. So it does feel like a smart move to rethink the name. Not that there was anything offensive with trans performance or the word transition or transformers right. or any other <laughs> incarnation of that. Any prefix. other place where trans shows up. Steve Sanderson had reached out to us here at the Fabulous 413 earlier this year to say, what if we got the word nerd on and we brainstormed better ideas for a name for trans performance? Now, uh, we mentioned this on the show yesterday and we had a listener who already reached out with a possible suggestion. Yeah, two possible suggestions, actually. Liz Jensen contacted us and had concertion, concert and then S-I-O-N, a blend of concert and conversion and mm. metamor music. Ooh. Right? I kind of yeah, like that one. That's got some promise. Yeah. Right. Well, 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 this is interesting to me because I was thinking, what about soliciting names for this performance, for this event, and giving a giving a prize of some kind along with it? This is exactly how we got the word scoff law, for for instance. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is there's there's great precedence for words being created this way. There are solicited coinages. It's also how we got the word youper, referring to a, a native or inhabitant of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So. <laughs> Yeah, we, we could go that route and let the listeners contribute. And then probably our, the Arts Council might. I don't know. They just do money. Do um, they have to vote on the name, Steve? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that myself and the director, Brian Foote, and the assistant producer, Peter McQuillan, uh, would basically do, you know, the day to day nuts and bolts, concert promotion and fundraising. We will be given some leeway. But who I really want to involve in this and run it by are all the stakeholders, all the musicians who have donated their time for the last 33 years, all the regulars, I think they should all have a say in what the new name is. Well, before we give some more of our ideas, Steve Sanderson from the Northampton Arts Council talking about the event formerly known as Trans Performance, currently known as Performance, and soon to be known as something else. Tell us <laughs> what the theme is this year that our favorite local hero bands will be 
performing under and who they'll be portraying. We, for a few years now, have really wanted to do a science and weather-themed performance, but the name never clicked. Well, this one finally clicked when Peter McQuillan, the assistant producer at the Northampton Arts Council, said, The Elements. Love it. Mm, Nice. The Elements is perfect. It gets your science, it gets your periodic table, and it gets your weather, which we all have this weather nut friend who was... (laughs) Thrilled! He thinks the trans. Uh, he thinks the. Excuse me. The performance uh, is catered to him this year, and maybe it is. And you he's, know. he's playing <laughs> under the name Dave Hayes and the Weathernuts. I happen to shameless plug be drinking from my Dave Hayes the Weathernuts supporter mug. Well, the Weathernuts tail has been wagging since we announced the theme. And who will Dave Hayes and the Weathernuts be portraying? Dave Hayes and the Weathernuts as Schoolhouse Rock, everyone's childhood favorite. So rock could be considered an element, and also there's a lot of science type songs yes. with Schoolhouse Rock. So that's. Yes. Pretty wide berth there. And just, just having Dave Hayes the Weather Night in the band also helps it work. Our very own Khalees Smith will be performing yes. with her band, The Soul Magnets. Who will you be portraying? We're Heat Wave. Heat Wave. <laughs> so heat, it's a yeah. weather-related thing. Heat Wave is a yeah. weather, is an actual weather thing. We have them. We had them this year. <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> They're still they happening. happen all over. <laughs> yes. What are some of the other bands and who they'll be portraying? Steve Sanderson, a week from today at Florence's Look Park for what was called Trans Performance, now called Performance and soon to be renamed. Tracy Grammer and Jim Henry as Iron and Wine. Wine is a central element for me. Prune is going to be Veruca Salt. That's I'm psyched about. Very excited. Lisa Bastoni as the Stone Coyotes. So one local hero covering another local hero. That's pretty interesting. And we had a death in the family of the Stone Coyotes that we talked about on this show. And I know you did on your show too, Steve, earlier this year. So that'll be a nice tribute. Let me tell you the story of a girl. And then how about King Radio as Neil Diamond? Oh, you brought this one up just to like stick a a little bit of something in Monty's craw now, didn't you? I emailed Steve Sanderson the moment the theme was revealed and said, I call Neil Diamond, but I have relinquished it now completely to King Radio because they are such an excellent band and they will do Neil Diamond justice. You know, I was going to pay for the cage for you and Frank from King Radio to fight in over Neil Diamond. Well, I might jump in and sing like background on We're Coming to America or something like that, but who knows? I will be there too. I'm not telling you who I'm portraying yet, but it it will be elemental. Let's go back to the word nerd here for a minute. Trans performance. There's no word in the Merriam-Webster thesaurus I'm assuming that we could go directly to look towards for words that may take the place of trans performance. But is there words that you can think of that already exist that may guide us towards a a potential new name? Maybe. I mean, I was thinking about terms that have to do with mirroring and copying. I also feel like there might be something good in the term doppelganger. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. and it's got the umlaut over the A's, which is over so, the A, so you know, which is re- always compelling. <laughs> For those who might not know what doppelganger means, what does that mean? Well, doppelganger can mean something as simple as like a double, someone who looks just like you. Oh, like oh my gosh, I you know I I know your doppelganger. They live in whatever or an alter ego. The the word is originally from German, and in German folklore, there's this idea that all living creatures have a spirit double who's invisible but is actually identical. 
identical. They can be distinct from ghosts, but they can also be understood as a spiritual opposite or negative. So it's, you know, it's like a mysterious other you that exists out there, which I feel like is, is a pretty interesting idea for performers who are kind of stepping into a role that is not the one they typically have, but that they feel connected to somehow. We're speaking with Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield, and Steve Sanderson from the Northampton Arts Council, as well as 93.9 The River, trying to brainstorm a new name for this 33-year-old legacy end-of-summer fundraiser event formerly called Trans Performance, currently called Performance, and soon to be called something more fun. Something <laughs> well, more fun. Monty, how do you know you're actually speaking to me? You could be talking to my ghost me. <laughs> I like that. Your other you. Even that is a kind of cool name. Doppelganger is a good one. You had a good idea, Steve Sanderson, for what this event might be called. Yeah, it came from a, a fan and a listener, and they suggested we use the term imposter syndrome. Well, imposter syndrome? Wait, I mean, you could just make it imperformance. Imperformance. Okay. Um, <laughs> so like an impishness implied? The only thing I could come up with that was maybe good was something along the lines of undercover. And then you also dress up. Most of the people who perform dress up as the uh, bands that they are portraying. So you're kind of dressing up undercover and you're doing cover music. And yeah. I don't think we are because Heat Wave shows up at their concerts in a lot of like vests and... You're not dressing up? <laughs> I already ordered two of my costumes that are well on their way. I have. I always portray as an MC multiple characters. Yeah. The other part of it is that like there's like nine people in my band. Like it's hard to get everybody to actually dress up. There's not enough vests in Western Mass. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. What is really nice about this event is it does become a musical family reunion for a lot of the bands that play in the area that don't often get to see each other because they're busy doing their own shows. The scene of the performers is incredible backstage, and the community really comes out to support this. Talk a little bit, Steve Sanderson from the Northampton Arts Council, about what some of the money that will be raised at performance on Tuesday at the Pines Theater at Look Park, sure. what it will go towards. It goes to fund our second grant round. We Northampton was the first city in Massachusetts to start their own second grant round. Money is allotted from the MCC, the Mass Cultural Council, to all the cities and towns in uh, Massachusetts every year. And 33 years ago, people like Bob Silman and his cronies at the time decided, you know what, we are going to start our own, say, concert series and raise money and give away a second round of grants. And it was right after a really harsh budget cut to the arts. We give away a second round of grants to any Northampton artist or art being executed in Northampton. And then the other part of this is earmarked for art programs in public schools. So all the food that you buy, all the beverages you drink, the profits from that go to the PTOs and it's earmarked to support the arts in the public schools here in Northampton. So it's a great feel-good way to get back to school if you want to support arts programming in the public school system in Northampton. So it's really fun event from the the audience perspective to watch and then to know that you're doing a good thing. Okay, before we wrap up, performance 33? That is correct. Performance? The Elements. <laughs> the Elements, a week from today, Pines Theater, Look Park, Florence Mass, a fundraiser for the Northampton Arts Council and Arts in the Northampton Schools and more. Let's run down all the names that we've put out there so far. Khalees, our listener, once again. Liz Jensen said Concertion, blending of concert and conversion. Metamore Music is the other one, blend of metamorphosis and music. I love that. That's fun to say. Isn't it? <laughs> Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster, what were some of the ones that you threw out there that might be good? Just ideas, really. Doppelganger, something to do with doppelganger. I'm not, it's not a complete name there yet. I love that. Playing with that idea. Dupla concert. 
Well, I like that, too. <laughs> I put out Undercover as a mm-hmm. potential one. And Steve Sanderson, what's the one you're working on? Imposter Syndrome. Well, we are open to all of your feedback, especially if this is an event that you've cared about over the years. You can send them to us at thefab413 at nepm.org, mm-hmm. or you can text them. 1-800-639-9120. And we'll forward them along. And then we'll, uh, we'll get together backstage and, and vamp with the musicians to see if we can coalesce around an idea. And as soon as we have one, can we get you back on, Steve Sanderson, to unveil the new name of this incredible event? I would love to. Wonderful. Steve Sanderson from the Northampton Arts Council and the morning show host at 93.9 The River and Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, joining us a day early to talk about the event performance that happens a week from today. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. We may have the band performing as Neil Diamond on for Live Music Friday. Later, I might sing along. Later, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid on observing the most distant star humans have ever seen. Plus, our legal expert, Western New England University's Jen Taub, with a lesson in the law surrounding the last batch of indictments of the former president. And next, local Lego guru Andy Price on this weekend's BrickCon Lego convention in Springfield. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are talking Legos and the Brick Convention, a Lego fan event coming to the Mass Mutual Center in Springfield this Saturday and Sunday. Will the Mass Mutual Center be built out of Legos? I think maybe. Our guest has submitted a delightful bio, which reads, quote, Andy Price hails from Liverpool, England, and has lived in the States for the last 26 years. He works in IT and has two major hobbies— the cheaper one is performing and being involved in community theater, where he has acted in many local theaters in the region. The expensive one is Lego, and he has loved it since childhood in England. Over the last 15 years, Andy has been building up his repertoire of Lego buildings and taking them to conventions and other gatherings in New England and as far as Virginia and Pennsylvania. He's been scouted twice to be a contestant on the hit Fox show Lego Masters, but politely declined as he likes to take his time in builds, but he does have the personality for it. (laughs) He's excited to have a convention come so close to his home in Granby, Mass., where he lives with his delightful wife, Nancy and their assortment of cats owned and fostered. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. I love that bio. A lot of people have bios on their websites and things, but they're not usually as much fun as that. Well, I enjoyed writing that bio. You know? <laughs> it must be the theatrical um, you know, things in me. It's just a little bit of the flair. And like you actually suggested this as a topic for us. And when it came in, I immediately went, oh, yeah, no, we're doing the Lego thing. Yes. <laughs> and I tried to get my 10-year-old son to be part of this conversation as he has spent most of his expendable 10-year-old money on yes. Legos. Uh, for the entirety of his 10-year-old life. But <laughs> what was the first Lego set that you were building in Liverpool, way, Oh, Way back when. This was, this was when the Lego sets had three numbers. That was like ages and oh. ages ago. The early 70s, I, I think there were some small little buildings and stuff. Minifigures were not even a thing yet. <laughs> they just invented vehicles. Um, and I, I, I just like to build towns and you know, vehicles and stuff like this. Um, and I still have a lot of those things. Um, lying around. Oh, of the older sets? Some of the older sets. Wow. Yeah. Are those old Legos valuable now where they're not necessarily associated with um, uh, intellectual property that may have come out with the package set? Yeah. Um, sometimes it's like with a lot of things. If you've still got them in the original package, mint in set, yeah, some of them can be expensive. And even some of the newer sets, you know, if you've got the mint in set and you, you saved them, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they're shooting up in value. Indeed. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, there's a lot of the like limited, especially the flower arrangement ones that, and the architectural ones that just go. Yes, they do. So, <laughs> so this is uh, the Brick Convention, a Lego fan event. Yes. But this is not officially an official Lego event, right? Can Correct. you differentiate yes. between that and and how and if Lego itself is involved? Yeah, sure. Um, Lego doesn't sponsor these these kind of events. They're all run by fans of Lego. Um, some of us are known as AFOLs, adult fans of Lego. <laughs> just so as you know what that means um, and and T falls for the teenage version and K falls and so on and so forth. Uh, we're, we're all run by uh, by volunteers and we just do it because we love the brick. Mm. And uh, you know, um, Lego sometimes at the bigger uh, conventions may may donate a few um, prizes and stuff, for, you know, raffles and you know, for, you know, giving away and all that kind of stuff. But in general, no. This is run by the fans because we love the brick. And sponsored by a couple of companies that do like their own builds, like their yes. own kits that you can get. Some of them are really, really impressive. I was again showing Monty the <laughs> the wealth of photos of things that are possible, like mosquitoes and amber, like. Oh, yeah. Some incredible stuff that, you know, and it's funny to me that the way that uh, like Bricker builds, which I believe is one of the ones that involve, they have to use the uh, Spirit Halloween yep. way of describing these things. So they can't necessarily call it like <laughs> exactly. Star Wars. It's called In a Galaxy Far Away. Or, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yes. So that's that's a lot of fun. Um, you this is at the Mass Mutual Center yep. in Springfield this Saturday and Sunday. If the Mass Mutual Center is built in time. Because, the, yes. Because you are building the Mass Mutual Center out of Legos, right? I, I am. I, I thought it would be it would be rather fun, you know, in a, in a kind of like a Britishy kind of way. It would be rather fun to build the building that the exhibition is going to be at. Yes. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And, and so being the procrastinator that I am, well, I'll tell you about that later. But um, I was actually... <laughs> I was actually a producer and a house manager for a local production of Cinderella, uh, you know, for a few weeks. And so that was taking up all my time. I kept procrastinating starting this build. I thought, oh, we'll get it done. We'll get it. Finally started last week. So I've still got four days, right? Yeah. <laughs> Tuesday. Of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Rome it... wasn't built in a day. Oh, no. Come on. <laughs> How long does it usually take you to design a, a new build for something like this, like the Mass Mutual Center? It very much depends. Like I say... Each each of uh, each of us has different like things that we like to build. I do buildings, especially real life buildings, because I like to see something in a picture and replicate it. Some people are really good at, at like the um, you know the very whimsical builds. They can come up with stuff out of their imagination. I'm not that kind of builder, um, but it very much depends. Like this mass mutual center, I actually went and took some photos of it, um, scouted around, worked out how big it would be. I use algebra. How about that? Wow, uh, Dang it, it really out, does yeah. happen. In it real does. Life. It, it really does. More often than you'd like to admit, <laughs> just in general. So worked out how many how many windows, how many doors, how many you know of everything, and then I set to it and I build, and that's not quite right. We'll take it apart, do another rebuild, and so now I'm almost there. You this, know, and it, it just varies on the building. Andy Price is our local Lego expert from Granby, and who will be part of this BrickCon convention this weekend at the Mass Mutual Center both days, Saturday and Sunday in Springfield. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that will happen at BrickCon. Yeah, it's very exciting. There's basically two sessions every day, uh, 10, 10 a.m. till 1 p.m. is the first session, and then 2 p.m. till 5 p.m. Um, 
everything you can see in one session you can come more than once if you want obviously but you can see everything in those three hours uh we we have all of these um builds i've got about 25 26 linear feet of town including three skyscrapers the smallest of which is four foot five it's the umass library wow uh, that's the smallest one and then i have a bunch of other buildings i've got union station from springfield i've got the mass mutual center i'm building plus a bunch of other things at nick's nest hot dog place oh nice all of those things um other other of my friends they're bringing castles they're bringing other builds um we've got a lego master really liz pulio she, she said specifically we mentioned mentioned the, uh, the lego master there she's part of our lego uh club so. what makes you a master do you have to go like study in shaolin with lego other lego masters or something you just have to you just have to blar it in the brick you just take a load of bricks and build some really cool things uh in a in a you know speedy time uh, but Liz Palio is going to be there. Um, we've got a, a Lego artist, AC Penn. He's very famous in the Lego world. He does lots of great stuff, a lot of flowers, actually. <laughs> um, we've got Lego artists. Uh, they're coming from Ohio, actually. A lot of mosaics with all kinds of superhero things. We've got, we've got ball pits, uh, uh, brick pits, sorry, for the kids. <laughs> they can jump into? Can, oh, can, no. Well, that, sounds that sounds like painful. it hurts just enough. And we have tons of vendors. So, parents, if, you, if your kids like Lego, yeah, we have vendors here, too. <laughs> Yeah, there's a whole host of things going on. Um, minifigures, Star Wars. Um, you can shop to find those hard-to-find Lego sets that uh, you've been after. Love it. Yeah. Uh, we have a listener, Adrian Graz Velasquez from Northampton, who wants to know, what's the most impressive build that you can think of? And maybe the least impressive that was much ballyhooed. <laughs> that the I built or that somebody else built? Well, let's go with one you built because I'd well, love to hear the one that you're most impressed with. I, I like, I like uh, my, my pink tower, which is five foot nine and a half uh, without the antenna. With the antenna, it's over seven foot tall. It, it's made of pink uh, pink brick because I had a lot of pink brick lying around, you know? Love it. Uh, I call it Pricey Tower, but not because it's Pricey Lego is, but my surname is Price, so Pricey ah, Tower. Got it. Um, so that's kind of impressive, but I like the UMass Library. It's kind of iconic, especially for around here. Um, and yeah, it, it's, uh, it, it's you have to move them very carefully. You build them in sections. And you pack them away nicely in boxes. And then when you get to the other side, all the bits that have fallen off, don't worry about it. It's Lego. Ah. Just put it back together. So you don't try to spray them and try to make them solid forever. You no, do that, that's cheating. <laughs> it'll take me about a day or so to set up on uh, Friday. Wow. It'll take you the whole day. The whole day. To, yeah, to get ready. That is incredible. How big is, do you know how big the biggest piece that's coming to the convention is? I don't, but the, um, you know, the, the Lego uh, artist, there's lots of mosaics going to be there. And there's a lot of um, things from AC Pin. Like I said, my, my particular town is going to be about 26 foot long on a corner. We have, we have a layout that's about, I, I'm not sure that I mentions, it's the Greater New England Lego Train Club that we've done collaboratives with before. They're going to have a working railway with town buildings, and that, I think, is about 40 by 30. It's a big layout. And then Rhode Island Lego User Group is coming up, and they've also got one around about the same kind of size. If, you, if you're unsure, come on uh, Saturday and Sunday and find out. I love that within this fandom, there's an even more specific fandom that oh, does, yes. like... Oh, yes, definitely. So there's Lego builders, and then specifically Lego train building. Oh, oh. Oh, they're, and, they're, and they're very, they're very staunch about their building. They're, they like to, they like their, re, you know, realism. They, they get these, these trains. You look at them and you think, no, that couldn't possibly be Lego. And you look close and everything, everything, the motors, the chassis, everything is Lego. That's unbelievable. That's Andy so Price cool. from Granby, who is part of the Brick Convention happening at the Mass Mutual Center in Springfield. 
this Saturday and Sunday. It's also a part of a, a fundraiser for Creations for Charity. Can you tell us a little bit about Creations for Charity? Yeah, um, Creations for Charity uh, is at a lot of the Lego conventions. Uh, it's an all-volunteer nonprofit organization that buy new Lego sets for underprivileged children around the world during the holidays. That's so good. I love it. I know. I love it, too. I yep. love it so much. We spread the Lego Lego joy. <laughs> What's your take on Lego sets? Because like when I was even when I was a kid, there weren't this that many intellectual property Lego sets. And, yes. they weren't and as, now there's like every single and thing. they weren't as big. Like yeah. the ones Definitely that you could get big, yeah. were were like, you know, smaller ones that you could probably do in a day at most. Yeah. Like not anything like I know two of my friends who have the millennium have and have done the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. One, which you is can build the Death Star now huge. and then destroy it and then build yes. it again. <laughs> why would you do that? I'm just like, no, it, I got well, there's it. There's an exhaust got, port, Khalees. I got why. to here. There's an exhaust port. But what is your take on on the, the rise of incorporating intellectual property into the world of Lego, which used to be kind of more your own imagination? It was. And, and, you know, I, I think it still is. I mean, it can be. I mean, you, you know, you look at some of the stuff I've come up with and other people that are even – you know, I get I go to some of these things, and people will say to me, "Oh, they, these things are great," and I go, "Yeah, they are pretty good." Then I go to a convention like this or an even bigger one, and go, "I should just stop doing what I'm doing because <laughs> these bills are superb." <laughs> but in terms of the Lego sets themselves, yes, they're a lot smaller. Um, and I, over the years, if you did a graph, you know, the, the number of piece count goes up and up and up. There's the Lego sets now that have ten thousand pieces. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's so. It's getting bigger and bigger, more expensive. Um, but it's it's great quality. I can take Lego pieces, and in the Mass Mutual Center, I've done this. I've taken Lego pieces from the 1960s that are not made anymore and incorporated them, and they fit perfectly. That's great to know. So that Legos that yep. go back all that way still fit with Legos that come. So you could go and find and, and capture somebody's unused hoard. I, 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 not that I've done that before, but yes, <laughs> you could. Have you not done that before? Because my family has. Well, like gone yes. to an estate and just picked up somebody's well, like. It's pile usually of a hand me down from like my nephew yeah, or, who grew out of them, and then he. I, shows I do up mine legally by by tag sales, and, oh, okay. and, <laughs> and sometimes sometimes friends will say, "Hey, you're into Lego. Would you do you do you want this?" Oh, well, I I couldn't possibly refuse. <laughs> so I will take the Lego and incorporate it into my stash. My my wife avoids going into my Lego room and into the garage because it kind of spills over. Oh. Do you have them separated by like color and type, all oh, the bricks, yes. just to make it oh, easier room, for yourself? Yeah, I, once we got rid of most of the kids, I was able to get a Lego room. <laughs> and it's all organized by type and part and color and oh yeah. But what he doesn't tell you is the Lego room was built out of Legos. <laughs> I mean, oh. no, that'd be a way to do it. I it would be yes. It would. The more you talk about this, the more it reminds me of my mom's knitting habits, <laughs> which is um, both a, a, an endorsement and a detriment. But not like because they're both wonderful and the way that things just get crafted and built is fantastic. Yeah. So. This sounds like so much fun. It's this Saturday and Sunday. The Brick Convention at the Mass Mutual Center in Springfield. Our guest, Andy Price, is building his own version of the Mass Mutual Center in Springfield as part of this celebration. It's both Saturday and Sunday. Thank you so much. And thank you. It's been a pleasure and a joy. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> right on. Later in the show, Western New England University's Gentile breaking down the Lego uh, build that might be the last of <laughs> Trump's indictments. We'll see. I don't know. If your state also wants to indict him, get on that train. But up next, observing the most distant star with Hampshire College is Mr. Universe, Dr. Salman Hamid. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
to boldly go where no man has gone before. Time for some more kitchen table astronomy with Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe. Apologies for having to bump you from our regular Monday slot on the show, but you got bumped by an astronaut, so I figured an astronomer would be okay with that. It's an honor to be bumped by an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to go see the movie at Amherst Cinema on Thursday that talks about how hard it is to say goodbye to somebody like when they go to the uh, International Space Station. You know, so the longest goodbye is the movie. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. These are some of the things that we will have to really think about, even looking for colony settlements on the moon, but certainly for Mars. It's a hard problem. Well, the moon and Mars are relatively close by, but what we're talking about today is the farthest star. Yes. So, Monty, last year, Hubble Space Telescope... Which is still kicking it, still doing good things, despite having a fancier brand or new space telescope out there with James Webb. Yeah, Hubble is still there, and a lot of respect for that, by the way, like, <laughs> you know. But anyway, last year, it detected the farthest star from the Earth. And, and we are not talking about a galaxy. So oftentimes we talk about, hey, uh, they, we have found like this smudge, which is the farthest galaxy in the, in the universe, so on and so forth. No, we are talking about a star 12.9 billion light years away. Or, or in other words, it's light started when the universe was only 900 million years old and its light just got to us. And we are talking about a single star. How did we observe this? How did both Hubble and now James Webb observe this? Because it got a boost from one of our favorite forces. Right. So this is actually one of those crazy things, which, I mean, you know, you have to salute to human creativity and the universe. I mean, don't forget the universe. Sometimes the universe gives you a gift. <laughs> That's Not right. Not necessarily in an astrology kind of way, in an actual astronomy kind of way. That's right. So gravity can bend light. So this is, again, going back to general theory of relativity from Einstein. But the key context is that we have figured out that if you have a large mass, say, for example, of galaxies, which are called galaxy clusters, they can actually bend light from objects that are farther away from it. And if you bend light, basically, you create a lens. So just like a, how your glass lens does, what a glass lens does is changes the direction of the light. In the same way, mass can do the same. And so in this particular case, there is a pretty large cluster of galaxies located about five and a half billion light years away. But as you can imagine, there is a lot of universe behind it. So it distorts light. It's a pretty massive cluster. It's about a thousand Milky Ways, like the galaxies. Oh, thousand... like, a, like a good haul on Halloween. <laughs> so a thousand Milky Way galaxies uh, can fit in, I mean, in terms of mass. And so it bends light from whatever is coming from behind it. And as it happens, one of the galaxy lights, it's an arc, which is called sunrise arc. As it happens in this arc, you see two clusters of stars. And in between, there is a single star. And astronomers, when, when they use the Hubble Space Telescope, they actually looked at its distance. And it turns out to be that this star, which they named it, Rendell from Lord of the Rings. Uh, Lord of the Rings and uh, uh, prequel, Silmarillion. As it turns out, it is also uh, in Old English. It means sunrise uh, or the morning star. But this particular star, it just happens to be lined up in a way 
that its light is being magnified and we on earth can see it. So just a pure coincidence, but its light is magnified 4,000 times. And now there is a beautiful image from James Webb. Again, please go and see. You can search for Arendel Star, James Webb Space Telescope, and you will see a beautiful image in that arc. And we now know a bit more about that star. Perfectly lucky coincidence. Space squared. You're absolutely right. I mean, like, you, know, you won't be able to see that type of resolution or that type of details from a telescope on the ground but space telescope can do it. And then the universe provides you with sort of like these amazing line of sight magnification sometimes. So remember, you need a big cluster of galaxies to bend light enough. And then you need something in the back from the light coming in and it has to align where we are here on Earth. So what do we know about the early universe? What did you say, 900 million years after the Big Bang from this particular star, Arendelle, that we can see because of a boost of gravity with our space telescopes. Right, so the question was, well, what are we going to find? And one of the thoughts were that maybe it's not a single star. We cannot resolve it. I mean, you know, now you're pushing it too much. If you say, hey, can we just see your dot? <laughs> can you no. take your fingers and open them up like this and blow it up like you can on your phone? But what James Webb Space Telescope found was that it looks like that the star is what astronomers call a B-type star, uh, and, and which means that it's uh, about bigger than our sun, uh, about twice as hot as our sun, but a million times more luminous. And we know that perhaps there is a companion to it. And the way they can figure out is because James Webb Space Telescope works in the infrared, near uh, sort of like you know, in the infrared part of the spectrum, which Hubble Space Telescope could not. And they can analyze the light. And there is some contribution, it looks like, from another star. We don't know the details, but it looks like it's a binary star, which is not surprising because Half of the stars in the universe are binary stars, meaning one star orbiting another. Not just on Tatooine, it's real. That's exactly right. And, and especially like big stars, they also have a binary companion. So that is not surprising at all, but it's really cool that we can actually tell like, hey, here is a star whose light started 12.9 billion years ago and it's a binary star. That's actually pretty cool. I should also add that, remember I mentioned sort of like there were also two clusters that they found? Well, James Webb Space Telescope has also analyzed the light from these two clusters. As it turns out, these are where new stars are forming. One of the clusters is less than five million years old, meaning to say it's very young. But the other cluster is actually, probably it's more than 10 million years old. But it looks like that it's a cluster that is stable. So what has that got to do with us? Well, this is a way we think that globular clusters, these are clusters of stars, sometimes about a million stars or so, and many of them are in our own galaxy also. And we think that is how they formed billions of years ago in our Milky Way as well. And here, by looking so far away, we are seeing a globular cluster in some sense in the process of formation. So by looking at this gravitational arc, we are seeing information potentially about how our own galaxy was formed. Every single star is like a time machine coming from all sorts of different points in time to us right now. So depending on 
how scientists have viewed the spectroscopy, they can tell how far away something is. So you could theoretically come up with a, a timeline of how things, how galaxies, how Milky Way are born, potentially looking back in time by using our telescope. Yeah, except I should mention that sometimes people get confused about the fact that can we see our own Milky Way back in time? We cannot because we are in here, so we can see... can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, Well, no, but it's also one of those cases that we already have the light from the Milky Way, from stars from the Milky Way. So even if you look at the center of the Milky Way, it's about 30,000 light years away, so we can only see 30,000 years back in in some sense. Which is a long time in human years. (laughs) But not in terms of if you're looking for stars because they live billions of years, right? But we can find other galaxies that are far away and we can imagine that if they are like the Milky Way and we can imagine, okay, well, that is how Milky Way would have been like, then we can learn from them about ourselves. But we cannot go back in time to see our own past. We can infer our past by looking at some other galaxies. Meaning to say, Monty, we cannot see your own past but we can see your kids. Well, actually, no, that won't work <laughs> if you send your kids far away. I know. I, I wanted to mention that because I know that you just dropped your kid to school. So yeah. tears. That and... is never coming back. <laughs> Talk about astronauts saying goodbye. I mean, at least he's not going to outer space. He's well, going to Bard, which is practically outer space. Yes, that's great. Uh, I, I think now about my parents, uh, because I came here from my undergrad, and that was about like you know, 10,000 miles away. And, and that must have been a bit harder than I imagine now. Well, get ready because your kid's getting old too. <laughs> That's right. We'll send him to boarding school now. <laughs> Up next, a brief law lesson using the example of a former president's legal troubles with Western New England University's Jen Ta. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NAPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. Jennifer Taub is a legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on follow-the-money matters, promoting transparency, and opposing corruption. She's the author of the book Big Dirty Money and has testified as a banking law expert before Congress. Professor Taub is a graduate of Yale and Harvard Law School and teaches law at Western New England University School of Law. She's also host of Booked Up, a podcast about and with authors. And speaking of being booked, (laughs) Trump has been indicted for a fourth time in five months, each in a different city. And we had you on for all the other three indictments. So we're literally going to square the circle with the fourth indictment here. But we, frankly, Khalees and I both, are kind of sick about talking about uh, the president. So let's talk about the legal aspects behind this. Yes, because when this happened, I had a question about the nature of returning indictments. What does that actually mean when the indictment gets returned? Okay, so um, it's interesting, right? Because if any of us have any experience, uh, unfortunate experience perhaps with the criminal justice system, most of us think about, oh, that person we know got drunk, got in a fight, got cuffed, got taken down to the jail, uh, got charged, and maybe they had to show up in court after that, after they made bail. And no one ever says anything about an indictment. Am I right? Right. I mean, you don't usually hear that. Um, And so indictments, uh, either at the federal or state level, are 
formal charges where a grand jury, which is different than an ordinary jury, a grand jury is used to bring charges, but only in more serious cases. So at the federal level, by the Constitution, if uh, you're charged with a felony, a grand jury has to meet, has to receive the evidence presented by the federal prosecutor and vote uh, whether uh, there's what's called probable cause to issue that indictment. There's an expression that a jury would indict a ham sandwich. Um, that's funny, I think, because my being Jewish, I think a lot of lawyers are Jewish and ham sandwiches are obviously not kosher. So of I course think that's they'll be where... indicted. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but <laughs> but the story, but but then when you get to, but when you get to like, let's look at the, st- at the state level, every state's different. Um, and so, for example, in Massachusetts, um, if you want to, if someone's going to be charged with a, I'm going to call it a serious crime without getting into like the legal details, but if you're going to be charged in what's called superior court with a crime, you actually, there has to be a grand jury indictment. Whereas if it's just a district court uh, charge, whether that's a misdemeanor or a small sentence, short sentence, potential crime, you can just be charged without a full grand jury. There's a probable cause hearing. Now, you may say to, your, say to yourself or to me, but what if it's a serious crime that someone's actually arrested on the street for doing, like a murder or, you know, in, the, in cases like that, you could still arrest someone, take them into custody and pretrial detention and hold them over. And then you would still have to have a criminal indictment for certain levels of crime. So I hope that distinguishes kind of between what people think of when they think about people being arrested, charged in um, going to court. And let me just say this thing. We say these things like district court is for the lower level crimes, superior court for more serious crimes in Massachusetts, but they can sometimes be in the same building. Mm. So if you you guys are in Springfield, there's that courthouse on State Street. It houses the district court and the superior court. But elsewhere in Hampton County, there's only district courts. So if it's going to be a more serious crime, the case would be tried there. I actually sat on a grand jury in Franklin County. It was a totally eye-opening experience, and it gets you to see the behind the scenes. It both gave me more faith in the legal system and in some ways less because, as you said, Jen Taub from Western New England University, a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich, meaning they're going to try to think of every single crime you could have possibly committed because you're not looking for proof beyond a reasonable doubt at this legal barrier right here. Um and that makes oh, let me, me just say this other the other thing they mm. don't have rules of the rules of evidence don't apply in the grand jury right and keep also in mind you don't have your defense counsel there it's a charge it's it's the same thing as like if you know when if you're arrested on the street your lawyers don't show up and negotiate whether you're cuffed or not same thing you know at a, at a grand jury you yeah. know it's one side it's the prosecution you will later challenge maybe the indictment and try to get it dismissed or you're probably going to just have to face trial or a plea deal And what was disappointing to me is that so many times you hear about a police officer who's been involved in some sort of crime, but a grand jury does not return an indictment when most of the time a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. So it gives you that other view on what goes on behind the scenes legally. Am I allowed to make pork jokes now or not? I'm sorry. (laughs) I, I don't. I that, that's just a 60s. Look, I'm for law and orders. order. I support the Capitol Police and, and the police <laughs> generally speaking. Uh, you know, there's a lot of problem with police brutality. So I'm not saying all police officers are good. I'm just saying I shouldn't have made that joke. Well, <laughs> you did. And let me explain why that's the case, though. It, if the prosecutor does not want to get an indictment, they can do a uh, uh, they can phone it in. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So. And so this is, um, of course, as we're hearing all over the place, a historic moment. I think what sets this apart is that it's in state 
uh, Georgia's jurisdiction so that he could not pardon himself or no one could pardon him, both on a state or federal level, right? I wouldn't say no one. Um, so in Georgia, uh, the way the pardon system works is there is a presently under their law a pardon board. And in order to be el- even eligible for a pardon, you would have to serve a certain number of years of your sentence. Now, ah. of course, uh. that law could be changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but right now, that's where that, that law stands. Is he going to be behind bars without bail? That is what a lot of people seem to be um, thinking might actually happen within the next 10 days, which is the amount of time he has to turn himself in. I used to believe it wasn't possible, and now I think it's highly probable. Wow. Um, and let me explain. Um, so the first his first opportunity to be in jail will be at the actual arraignment under this this Fulton County indictment, all the all 19 of the defendants, including Donald Trump, have to show up um, for their arraignment by next Friday at noon, or they have to make arrangements to show up by next Friday at noon. So it could be before that. And what the sheriff has said in Fulton County is, you know, he's like any other defendant. We will require a booking photo, you mm-hmm. know. So what my understanding is, booking photos are done at the jail, and so is fingerprinting maybe. So the question is whether, as the normal process is, you're held over in a jail while that happens, even if it's a couple hours or 20 minutes. So he may actually be in there. Now, of course, they're going to have to yield to what the Secret Service requires. The other thing is pretrial detention. Every state is different. And in Georgia, the presumption is that you are detained pretrial unless your lawyer can prove that you're um, not a flight risk, you're not a danger to others, or other there are other factors. And one of them, my very favorite one, and let me just get the language right, is in Georgia, you will not be released on pretrial detention unless your lawyer can prove that you pose, no, this is a quote, pose no significant risk of intimidating witnesses or otherwise obstructing the administration of justice. Which, Which we've seen him do on social media, even within the last couple of we days. We have film of him doing it. Yes. So you may ask yourself, because uh, I did, well, how is he, you know, how are they going to have the Secret Service in that kind of jail? So the, here's the deal. My friend Brian Karam, White House reporter, says there are a lot of um, federal like bases in, in, in Atlanta. You, know, he, you could find a detention center or a military space or whatever, and they could they could detain him if necessary. So I think we might see some surprises here uh, going soon. Really, really quickly. Um, is this it for the indictments? Are we done? I don't know. I mean, there may be some obstruction indictments, but this is, I think, it for there could be a superseding here or there. I think being I think being twice impeached, quadruply indicted is quite enough. I've been waiting to say quadruply since thrice went out of fashion last night. (laughs) Um, Yes. And it's amazing. I just want to say this is this is jaw dropping, shock and awe. And I really think she did an impeccable job with this. And I would say that uh, uh, Fonnie Willis is the B bad A Barbie. And I would say uh, Jack Smith is just Ken. Thank you, Jen Todd. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.